The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. So for the last few months I've been exploring the teachings of the Four Noble Truths. And um, one of the things the Buddha said about the Four Noble Truths is that basically all of his teachings could be found within this context. If we just understand the Four Noble Truths, that all of his teachings can be kind of fit into the various aspects of the Four Noble Truths. And um, for the last few weeks, I've been talking about the Eightfold Path, the beginning of the Eightfold Path, right view. And I'd like to continue that a little bit today by exploring one of the central teachings of the Buddha and one of his most complex teachings, um, that of dependent origination. First, I'd like to talk a little bit about how this fits into wise view. Um, the, um, the Buddha in one discourse talked, was talking to somebody and uh, this person came up to him and said, what is wise view? How is, is one of wise view? And the Buddha described this in many different ways at different times. But um, in this particular case, he kind of took a different angle, a different tack. At, at wise view. You know, sometimes wise view is, is described as just being an understanding of the Four Noble Truths or an understanding of what is skillful and what is unskillful in our actions and our behavior. Kind of very um, down-to-earth ways of describing it. In this case, he, um, he took this different angle and he, he kind of started by talking about how people usually see their, their lives and their experience. And he, says, he said, mostly people see things from this perspective of um, that things exist, or, that the, or if things, and if things exist, perhaps some things, they think of things as existing forever. You know, perhaps some notion of a, of a permanently existing um, soul that carries on afterward dead. Uh, or it might, um, we might have the notion of if there is something that exists, that it, stop exists, it stops existing at some point. That there are things that exist and then there are things that stop existing. And he said, mostly people are, are, you know, think in those terms of things that exist and things that don't exist. And he said, I, I see things in a different way. And he actually, he actually pointed to, if you actually look at what you think of as existing, you'll see that things that have come into being fall apart at some point. And if you think of things um, as not existing, you'll see that they come into being at some point. And so that this... Um, this, uh, this view of seeing or thinking of things as existing or not existing kind of begins to get undermined as we actually look at our actual experience. And he said, so, you know, given this kind of 
polarity that people usually see the world in is either exist, there's things that exist or things that don't exist. He said, I look at things from a kind of a middle perspective. And here is where he introduced dependent origination. And I'll read a little bit of this. I'll read a little bit of this um, text that I've just described. So hopefully it will make a little bit of sense now that I've described a little bit. Venerable Sir, it is said right view. In what way is there right view? And the Buddha responds, This world, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the notion of existence and upon the notion of non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, and by the world here he means the world of experience. He's not talking about the cosmos so much, but the world of our experience. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of existence in regard to the world. All exists. This is one extreme. All does not exist. This is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes... I teach the Dhamma by the middle. With ignorance as condition, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as condition, consciousness. And he goes on to describe 12 12 steps. Um, Ignorance, conditions, volitional formations. And I'll describe what all these are. Ignorance, conditions, volitional formations, which conditions how we see things, our consciousness, which conditions our mind and body, which conditions our faculties, our six sense spaces, which conditions contact with the world, which then conditions the fact that we feel things. We are contact. We feel things. Which then conditions, and this is where it moves into... um, Suffering, it then starts to condition wanting things. We feel things to be pleasant or unpleasant. We start to want them to be pleasant. We start to want to get rid of things that are unpleasant. That wanting then conditions a kind of a, a clinging, a grasping to have things be the way we want them to be, which then conditions a, an identification with, a, a kind of a, a becoming into um, an existence, a coming into a form of an existence which then leads to the, um, this, the, what, what's called birth, or a, a kind of a taking birth into an identity, which then leads to the inevitable aging and death of that identity, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. So he describes this basically as that, that all of our suffering, all of our experience... Uh, can be understood to be conditioned in this way. That there isn't anyone, a being, a soul, that's kind of driving this whole thing. It's all conditional. And even that notion or that sense of a being here is uh, an arising out of causes and conditions. So I'm going to explore this today. This is this is um, this teaching is complex. You know, it's got twelve links to it. That that in itself makes it complex. And um, you know, even in the time of the Buddha, there was uh, there was kind of a 
you know, an, a, mis, a misunderstanding about this teaching a little bit. His, his attendant, Ananda, came to him and said, you know, I really, I really like this teaching on dependent origination. It seems so clear to me. And the Buddha said something like, don't say that, Ananda. He said, this teaching on dependent, compla- uh, uh, dependent origination seems complex, and it is complex. When one completely understands this, basically one is fully in- enlightened. So it's, uh, it's, it's a complex teaching. Um, but there is, there is a way that we can begin to understand aspects of this teaching that uh, will help us in a- approaching our experience. It can help to kind of reframe or reorient us towards seeing things from this conditioned perspective as opposed to from this perspective of me, mine, who I am. So this, um, I hope to make this talk both clear and practical. Um, it's, uh, it has been an, it has impacted my own practice quite a bit, this, this teaching, this understanding. And so I'd like to explore a little bit how I have seen it to support me. I don't see this teaching as a practice. You know, as we've talked about the various teachings in the Four Noble Truths over the the last few months. Some of them have been clear practices. In fact, the Four Noble Truths themselves are practices. You know, that we, um, the practice, the the, the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the path, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. The Buddha uh, associated practices with these. He said we should understand suffering. We should um, let go of the cause of suffering. We should realize the cessation of suffering and we should cultivate the qualities of heart and mind that are expressed by the, the Eightfold Path, the path leading to the cessation of suffering. So in some, some of these teachings are practices. Many of them, much, much of what the Buddha offered was really practical in terms of you can apply this here and now to look at your experience. This teaching um, is not really a practice. It's more of a description of how suffering comes to be. And for most of us, it's, it's a description of how we live our lives, or how our lives are lived, actually, is probably a better way to put it. How life is lived. So it's not so much, it's not so much uh, something to do as something to understand about how our suffering is created. So as we um, explore this, you know, we can begin to see, begin to understand some key pieces about our suffering. I mean, the, the, at one point, um, somebody asked the Buddha, um, you know, so does suffering even exist? You know, if there's nobody here to experience suffering, is there any suffering? And then the Buddha said, yes, there is suffering. There is the experience of suffering. There is not a continuous continuous uh, a a being that continuously exists that experiences suffering suffering arises suffering is experienced suffering ceases the ceasing of suffering is experienced no one doing that so we begin to understand as we um, listen to kind of 
reflect on this teaching, we can begin to understand our own suffering, our own um, stress, our own dissatisfaction, everything that we consider as a struggle in our lives, we begin to see that it's conditioned. It's not so personal. Everyone um, goes through their lives with these conditions at play in their lives. And so it's not so personal. We tend to take our suffering very personally. The other piece around uh, this teaching is that it, what it really highlights or points to is that um, our suffering, this dukkha, and I talked at length about dukkha some time ago. I'll just say a little bit right now. Um, this dukkha that the Buddha talks about is a, um, it's a mental construction. It's not... It's not kind of in. Uh, how do I put this? Um, the 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 reason why we suffer is not inherent in our experience. So you know, for instance, somebody cuts you off on the freeway. You know, you might think that it's inherent that you would suffer about some kind of anger about being cut off on the freeway. But what's happening in our minds is that there's that um, thing that happened. Somebody kind of cut into you close. Then there's something that happens in our mind. We, we see that. We, we think about it. We, we get afraid. What if something had happened? What if it, the road had been just a little bit wetter and you know, I couldn't have hit my brakes hard enough and I'd slammed into him? What? So, so we, we start thinking about it. And then we get angry. So the, the process by which we uh, suffer there, it's, it's not kind of inherent in the somebody cutting you off in a freeway, anger arises. There is a mental process at work by which that suffering is created, by which that anger is created. And anger is felt as suffering if you actually turn to look at it. If you're not looking at it, you might not notice that it's suffering. You, know, you might feel a kind of a self-righteousness, a self-justification, a feeling of... Yeah, I'm right, and that person's wrong. And, and we may not actually notice it as suffering, but as soon as you turn to actually look at the experience, you will see there's pain in the body, there's holding, there's contraction, there's tightness, there's tension, there's, there's a kind of a, a, an agitation in the mind trying to, to um, you know, tell that person off or whatever. You know? so, so there is suffering in that experience. So that suffering, the suffering that the Buddha is addressing is created in our own minds. It's created by our reaction to our experience. And this reactivity is what this chain is addressing. It it is describing how this reactivity is is born, how this reactivity even comes to be. The other piece about this, uh, this teaching, a piece that we can take in, is that um, this chain that I described and will describe at length in a few moments um, describes conditions that lead one to the next. So in that example of the, you know, the freeway, being cut off on the freeway, there was the event, the seeing of the person. There was the, um, the thoughts that arose about it, the, perhaps the bodily sensation of fear that arose as, as you, you know, hit the the brakes, 
And then there was a kind of a, a mental proliferation that began. What if, what if, what if? So th- what this chain describes conditions that lead one to another, but it's not locked into place. They're conditions, but there can be choices that we make, that our minds can make, that can lead us to not react, to not have that suffering arise. So we can begin to dismantle the causes of suffering by seeing in particular the key places where we leap into our reactivity and bringing careful attention to those places. So this teaching describes how we usually kind of habitually react in our lives. And then next week I'll talk a little bit about how we can use this understanding to begin to explore with careful attention to make different choices. So there's a lot, a lot to talk about with this teaching. So today I'm primarily going to just talk about the, the unfolding uh, set of conditions that, usually, that we usually live in. When we're not so mindful, we live out this chain, this chain of reactivity. We could call it the chain of reactivity. You know, chain of dependent origination sounds to, so technical, but we could just talk about it. This is the chain of reactivity that the Buddha is describing. How is reactivity created in our mind and that reactivity leading to suffering? So the, um, the 12 links, I'll just make them, state them each very succinctly. Um, ignorance leads to mental formations, ideas, uh, responses, reactions, um, which conditions our consciousness, how we take things in, which con- conditions then, our consciousness then conditions what's called mind and matter, or name and form, or mentality, materiality. This is kind of the complex of our mind and body. So the way our mind is the consciousness, the kind of the the filtering of our consciousness impacts the rest of our mind and body, which then um, conditions or impacts our sense bases, the, the sense bases being the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and our mind. Those sense spaces are the place where we receive information from the world. Those are the, 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 the key places where information comes in. And so that, the next link in the chain is contact. That those sense spaces condition the fact that we receive information from the world. We didn't have an eye, we wouldn't receive that kind of information. If our if we if we didn't if our ears were were deaf we wouldn't receive that information. So the um, the sense basins condition this contact, the contact with the world. From that contact, then there is the next the next aspect is feeling, whether things are pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Sometimes talked about as neutral. From that place of of feeling we then move into, typically move into craving or wanting. Wanting things that we find pleasant, wanting to get rid of things we find unpleasant. From that wanting, we then move into possessing, 
clinging, taking, having, or getting rid of. So there's that clinging. From that clinging, then, there is um, a movement towards identification, a sense of, oh, this is, this is the kind of person I am, I have control. And then we take full identity. It's like, this is me, this is mine, this is who I am. From there, once we've moved into an identification, there is this inevitable uh, aging and death. Either of the things that we possess, they, they will change, fade, disappear, or of that identity itself. So if it was an identity that we liked, or a thing that we liked, the ending of that will bring suffering. If it was an identity that we didn't like, or things that we didn't like, the ending of it may bring a sense of relief. But in any case, whatever comes into being will fall apart. There is an understanding that this is a cycle, so it's it's a chain. So that last one that that um, uh, the Buddha actually talks about old age and death, this last aspect is basically the entire the entire mass of suffering. That it's kind of a shorthand. The entire mass of suffering is a shorthand for everything that happens to us once we have identified and taken birth into an identity. There will be suffering that arises. And the understanding is that this kind of loops back and um, informs further ignorance, which is the beginning of the chain. So this um, cycle loops back on itself. Suffering perpetuates ignorance. If suffering is not seen clearly, it tends to lead us into doing things the way we've always done them, which generally is this reactive cycle. So it's cyclic, this loop, this chain is is cyclic. It kind of feeds into itself. And then it also, the, the other aspect is that it is causative, that there is each piece kind of moves us into the next area. That It's kind of like dominoes falling. That when this happens, this will happen. When that happens, the next thing will happen. So that it's got that kind of um, cause and effect description, this chain of dependent origination. So one thing I, I feel like I need to at least put out there is that this teaching... Um, with all of these steps, is sometimes, um, it's, des- it's described in two different ways in the Buddhist texts. One way that it's described is as a, um, a teaching that describes how we um, move from life to life. You know, that there is this, this notion in in Buddhism and in India at the time, there was very widely spread an understanding or a belief in rebirth. And one of the big questions that the Buddha was often asked, well, so if there's rebirth, because the Buddha, the Buddha also talked about rebirth, that, you know, that, you know, there was a propagation of this process into future lives. 
And um, this was his part of his explanation that, that there was a lot of a question about, well, if there's rebirth, you know, who is it that's reborn? You know, there must be something that is reborn. There must be an existing soul that is reborn if there is rebirth. And his expression was, no, it's, it is this chain that just continues. And the, the propelling of our existence happens moment by moment in this life the propelling through um, a moment of sense contact leading to feeling, leading to craving, leading to becoming, leading to this identity, leading to aging and death. He said this same process just happens. There's no one behind it. But at, at death there's just this continuance of this process. Death doesn't stop this process from happening. So this was kind of his explanation of how there can be rebirth without an existing soul. So this is one way that this teaching is understood, is is exploring um, this notion of rebirth. And some of the links in the chain, um, particularly the birth and old age and death links, which is how they are termed, the last two links of the chain, it it is said that um, this sense of craving leads to clinging, leads to this movement towards wanting to become, to this, to this wanting to, to be, which leads to a birth, which leads to aging and death. So the, the link there kind of does give that sense of it, that this teaching is talking about how we are propelled from life to life. How... Uh, existence is propelled from life to life without there being an existing uh, soul that is moving through lives. But there's another way that it is uh, explained as um, a description of how our suffering, our reactivity is created moment to moment in this, in this very life. So it's, it's used in both ways in the texts. And in this case, the term birth is usually understood to mean a birth into a self, into an, a sense of self, the I am, that feeling. We all know that feeling, right? We all know what it feels like to feel like I am someone. That's what, the, uh, the Buddha, that, that's what is meant by that link of, of birth when we're looking at this as a moment-to-moment arising in our life here and now. Not the birth of a being in a womb, but the birth of an identity in a moment. And we go through many of these in a day. So the second version of this uh, teaching is the one that I most resonate with because I don't have any personal um, experience around rebirth or the sense that I'm going to be reborn. But I do have a pretty... Um, uh, I've had a, some, some clear recognitions of aspects of this chain unfolding in my moment-to-moment experience. And so this has been very meaningful to me to see and to connect with this teaching in this way. So this is how I'm going to speak about it today. I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave the teaching around um, rebirth to the side and just talk about how this chain of reactivity, this chain of dependent origination, can be understood to describe how we get caught over and over again, how we react. 
So I'm going to start in the middle of the chain and not from the beginning. The first link is said to be ignorance, leads to mental formations, leads to consciousness. Those three can be a little complex to to understand, so I'm not going to start with the most complex ones. I'm going to start where it's easy. So (laughs) we're going to start from the fact that we have a, a body and mind. We can all kind of check in with that. Okay, we have a body and mind. And because we have this body and mind, we have these sense bases. We've got our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, our, our body. We've got the sense base of the body, which includes the touch sense both inside the body and outside the body. And then we have our minds. Because of that, as I said a few minutes ago, we have contact with the world. We see things. There are things in the world, we see things. There's contact with the eye base. We hear things. There's, there's sound. There's contact with the ear base. We smell things. Contact with the nose base. Etc. For all of our sense bases, including the sixth sense, the, the, the Buddha described six sense bases, which are the five usual sense bases that we learn about in grammar school, you know, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching. And then there is the sense base of the mind, which in Buddhism counts as the sixth sense base. And this is the place where we receive mental experience. So the mind base is how we experience thoughts, how we experience emotions how we experience consciousness of what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch. So there is this uh, contact with the world. So the, the sense bases are, are the, the way that we get information from the world. That's contact. Every single moment of contact has a flavor to it, a kind of a spin. It's either pleasant, it's unpleasant, It's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And based on that feeling tone, we tend to, in a very natural way, like what's pleasant, not like what's not pleasant, and want to have more of what's pleasant, want to get rid of what's unpleasant. Often with the neither pleasant nor unpleasant, we kind of just don't notice it. it. It's just not in the realm of our experience because we, we kind of space out around it. So there's this wanting, want more, pleasant, want to get rid of unpleasant. And because of that, um, you know, we're like the simple, you know, it's, we can really look at this one as a cause and, cause and effect. This is an important place to look at the cause and effect nature of our experience. I mean, we don't have much to say about the fact that, you know, we have a body and there's you know, our eyes are open, we, we get sight. I mean, that, that just happens. You know, we, there's not much that we can do to stop that from happening if our eyes are open. That, that it's clear, so that's clearly conditioned. But we can't necessarily stop the, the process from, you know, we see something, our eyes are open, our eyes will take in the sight. So that's a pretty clear, you know, conditioned thing. From this place of feeling, we take things in, we see something, we hear, hear something, that the pleasant, the unpleasant aspect of it. We tend to, from that place of receiving the pleasant, unpleasant experience, respond, react. So this is, this is a condition. We, we see things, we like, we want them. 
Very natural. I mean, it, it goes back to way our biology. You, you look at single-celled amoebas, and they do something similar. You know, they they move towards food. They move away from noxious chemicals in the environment, just as a kind of a stimulus response thing. So this, you know, this is pretty deeply um, into our experience that we move towards things we like, move away from things that we don't like. But this particular link, and I'll talk more about this next week, this particular link is not a hardwired connection. This particular link from pleasant to, to liking to wanting to, you know, needing to do something about that doesn't have to be followed through. So this is really the key place where our reactivity begins. So this is where it becomes the cycle of reactivity, feeling leading to wanting. From that wanting, again, there's kind of a movement. Once we want something, we kind of start um, taking, um, we kind of, our, our intention, once we have wanting, our intentions, our actions kind of rally in the service of that wanting and start to orient ourselves around, you know, getting things. So we take some kind of action to get the thing that we want, get rid of the thing that we don't want. This is where this wanting turns into what is called clinging. When we act out the wanting. We can experience wanting and not do anything about it. I think many of you have had that experience, perhaps, that there can be a wanting in your experience, and you just go, yep, that chocolate bar's sitting there, but no, not right now. Don't think I'll go there. So we've had that experience of wanting something but not following through. That would be, you know, kind of that place where we don't have to follow through lockstep in the uh, the chain between wanting and clinging. So this taking action on our wanting, this is when it becomes clinging. So once we have clung to something. We, um, we kind of, so we, now we have something. And once we have something, we kind of like, it, there begins to be this process of um, wanting to control it. I mean, these things kind of shade from one to another. They're not, it's not so clear sometimes how, how, you know, how exactly distinct they are. But once we cling to something, our intentions, our actions kind of serve that clinging. We want to produce things or control things, manipulate things. This is becoming. This is a kind of the the process of behavior that's generated to support that thing that we've clung to. Now, you know, we like becoming. Becoming feels good. I think this is in the stage of this cycle. Uh, we like having the sense of, I know what I'm doing, I know where I'm headed, I know how to do this. That's that feeling of becoming. Following on from that, and again, kind of shading into from that, is this sense of, you know, I know how to do this. I can do this. 
I have to do this to be happy. This is kind of full-fledged birth into an identity that we, we begin to, at this point, at this point we really have said, yes, this is what it takes for me to be happy. I figured it out and this is it. So this is, this is birth, some kind of an identity. Things become me, they become mine, they become who we are. It might be something obvious, you know, like, you know, that's my car, you know. You know, somebody takes it, it's like, well, that was my car. There's a, there's a, you know, that, that ownership feeling. Or it might be something more like a, a sense of, um, you know, an identity of I'm the kind of person who does things right. A sense of being in the right. So from here, the Buddha says that this suffering is inevitable. Once we have taken birth into some kind of an identity, claimed, set a stake into the ground, this is me, this is mine, suffering will ensue. If we have claimed something is mine, suffering will ensue because at some point that thing will not be ours anymore whether it's from the natural decay of that thing, the loss, the breakage, or somebody taking it, or from our, uh, our dying or leaving. At some point there will be separation from everything that we hold dear. And if there is a clinging to that, there will be suffering. If there's that, that sense that was mine, there will be suffering. A kind of a poignant uh, example of this. And I was just talking to some people the other day who've done a lot of hospice work, and um, you know, an elderly man in his nineties, I think, was dying, and uh, you know, he was he was really angry. You know, it's like, why is this happening to me? And you know, this is the na- this is this is the natural process of life, right? Life ends in death. It's not personal that we die. But we can take it very personally. And he was suffering over that. So it is this, you know, this identification, this taking things to be me, to be mine, and the ownership of that, the taking it personally, that will create the suffering. The stronger the clinging, the stronger the identification, the stronger the sense of me or mine or I, the greater will be the suffering, the greater the possibility for suffering. So that gives you a little flavor of dependent origination. And now I'm going to loop back to those beginning beginning three elements of this chain. So from this birth into the identity, there is the... Uh, inevitable suffering that will happen from that birth into that identity. And because this chain describes a cyclic pattern, as I said before, uh, the suffering that we experience from that place of holding on, thinking, you know, this is going to do it for me. This is what's going to make me happy. Having this thing will make me happy. And the, the stronger we cling to that, the greater the suffering will be.
that suffering then can condition further ignorance. It, 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 it can lo- lo- leap us, lead us back into this chain. The Buddha actually said that suffering will condition one of two things. It will condition bewilderment or ignorance, or it will condition a sense of search. Is there a way out of this suffering? If we don't have a, a pointing to a way out of the suffering, we will just be led right back into our ignorance over again. So suffering often leads to confusion. Why me? Why is this happening to me? A main definition of ignorance is this not understanding of the Four Noble Truths. We don't understand suffering. So that suffering, this is, this is one of the key pieces around the Four Noble Truths, is understanding suffering. If we, if we are suffering and don't understand it, but just in ignorance and bewilderment around, why am I suffering? We are not understanding that suffering. We are not seeing it, how it has been created, how it has been brought into being through this cycle, through this process of reactivity, through this process of identification. We're not seeing that. So we're in the suffering and we're, why me? We are not understanding suffering. So this key definition of ignorance is not understanding the Four Noble Truths. We don't understand suffering. We don't understand how it's caused. We can't possibly let go of the cause of suffering if we don't understand the cause of suffering. So we're led, led from that suffering into more ignorance. And we just think, well, the last time I felt really good was when I felt like I had control. You know, that's when I felt really good. So let's see if I can figure out how to get back to that. Well, that's taking us back through this cycle. What can I find in my life that I can feel like I have control about? What can I find to have that will make me feel okay again? That's how we get propelled back into this cycle, into this chain. So it conditions further ignorance. This suffering tends to condition ignorance, although it is not necessary. Again, you know, this is a place where with seeing how suffering comes to be with wisdom, we can move in a different direction towards um, a completely different chain, causal chain the Buddha described, towards faith and confidence that there's a way out, towards a meeting of experience with mindfulness, towards seeing clearly how the suffering comes to be. This can lead us in a completely different direction if we meet that suffering with wisdom, turning towards it instead of reacting to it, furthering this cycle. But typically, without some kind of training or exploration or or explanation of how suffering comes to be, we're just back in this chain. We're just back in there. So out of ignorance... The next link in the chain from ignorance is mental formations. This is um, basically what mental formations are. Are the, the ways that we choose things, decide things, 
uh, behave, you know, mental formations, the kind of impulse towards how we live our lives. And so you can see if we're conditioned by this ignorance, not understanding where suffering comes from, our decisions are going to be kind of in the direction of how can I get what I want? How can I get rid of what I don't want? How can I create that feeling of I'm in control? I have what I want. Because that's the last time I felt really good. So the, um, the ignorance is conditioning these, these mental formations to engage in getting things, having things, controlling things, manipulating things. So out of ignorance, we act in unskillful ways. We usually take the most obvious step to, towards happiness, which is to get what I want, to get rid of what I don't want. We we're kind of have blinders on. You know, we, we see in a very, in the tunnel vision, kind of. When we're seeing through ignorance, we're seeing through tunnel vision, and it's like having what I want. That's as good as it gets. That's as, we think that's as good as it gets. We cannot even conceive there might be another way of relating to experience. And so that conditions our choices. So we think that we're acting to further our happiness when we act to get what we want, get rid of what we don't want, feel like we control the environment. But actually it is just sending us further, deepening the ruts of those habits that say, if I get what I want, I'll be happy. Well, it didn't happen last time, but maybe this time, if I get what I want, I'll be happy. Well, that didn't work. Maybe, maybe I'm picking the wrong things. Oh, this is what I... It doesn't work. So that, that ignorance really conditions how we act, how we choose, how we behave. And because of that, that tunnel vision, essentially, certain things come into our minds, come into our consciousness, and other things don't. It's as if, it's not as if, it is that we have this kind of filter on that comes through this ignorance, that comes through these intentions to act in the ways that we think will make us happy, but don't necessarily make us happy, that we, when we take experience in, it comes in confirming those beliefs if it doesn't confirm those beliefs, sometimes we just don't even see it. So this is mental formations conditioned consciousness. Our consciousness, what we experience, what we take in, is conditioned by this tunnel vision. This tunnel vision excludes certain things from our ability. We, we have certain things we can't even see because we have this view of our reality and what will make us happy. The idea, the notion of letting go of the wanting just doesn't even come into our mind. Now this kind of filtering mechanism is very deeply into our psyche. It is, it is um, actually seems to be something that um, potentially helps us do things in the world. 
I've told this story before, but it's a really great example of how we can just simply not see things that are right in front of us because we have an agenda. So there is uh, a study. There was a study that was done um, around this. I think it's called selective attention. In the psychological term is called selective attention. When we have an agenda, we see certain things, we don't see other things. So they wanted to do a study about this. And so what they did is they had people watch a video of people passing basketballs. They were asked to say, to say um, how many times the basketball passed between people on one of the teams. So they were sitting there looking at that and you know tracking the passes between the people on the team. And most people could clearly, you know, identify, yep, here's how many times it was passed. And then, you know, one or two people in this group, the large group of people doing this, would say something like, was there something other that happened? Like, did some gorilla come out on the, on the, you know, basketball court? And most of the other people said, no, there wasn't a gorilla. They played the tape back, and there indeed was a gorilla out on the basketball court, kind of running around, dancing around, a guy in a gorilla suit. And people did not see it. In fact, the belief was so strong that, it was, that their consciousness reflected accurately the, their experience that they claimed that the researchers had used a second, a second videotape when they played it back the second time. They could not fathom that actually they had not seen it. So this is a really good example of how our, our agendas just make some things not visible in our minds. This happens to us a lot. This happens to us in ways we can't even conceive of. So here we are with a consciousness conditioned by agendas conditioned by views, able to see some things, not able to see other things, with beliefs that this is what will make me happy. And this is the mind that we bring to our sense contact, our feelings. You can see that we come into this. When I first started through this chain, we were starting with, okay, we've got a mind and a body, we've got sense contact, you know, kind of thinking about it coming in, of course everything comes in. You know, we open our eyes, we see everything there is to see. But no, we don't see everything there is to see. We don't hear, feel, sense, touch, experience in our mind everything there is to experience because we have this tunnel vision, these agendas. And so the cycle, because we're coming into this cycle, with these agendas that this is how to live my life, I need to get what I want, it perpetuates this cycle. Our ignorance of how suffering is created is kind of carried through our lives, perpetuating this pattern. So um, next week I'll talk more about how to use this understanding to help to free us. Actually, there's a teaching that, that says, look at each one of these links. You can you know, just pay attention to any one of these areas of experience and see 
how it um, comes into being, how it falls apart, this will begin to undermine the way it kind of automatic, it undermines the ignorance, which is the kind of thing that keeps this loop, this chain going. Ignorance is what keeps this cycle in existence. As we begin to undermine the existence, the, the ignorance, this chain moves in a different direction. And I'll talk more about that next week. So we have just a few minutes, um, if there's any questions or comments. I knew that this was going to be a long talk this morning, but just if there's anything that anybody wants to say or question. Yeah, Irv, and then Pat. Andrea, would you say that at every moment of our lives... We have a choice. We can go one way or another. I would say yes, we do. Every moment, have a choice. <laughs> it's not always that we're conscious of that choice, <laughs> and that's what this practice begins to do. Is it shows us that we do have a choice. There, there is choice. It's not, it's not a me, that there is choice, the possibility of changing the direction. Yes, and Pat. This is really just a comment that I saw a PBS show where they included that, that example uh-huh. with the uh, gorilla and the basketball players, and they told the viewers ahead of time what was happening in that, so you could see the gorilla. And then the show went on to show other examples of not using basketballs and so forth. And as viewer, you were told ahead of time what the what the scenario was, but yes. then they showed all of those second ones again, and lo and behold, there's a gorilla behind in all the other segments. Oh, really? But they hadn't told you that the gorilla would show up again. And, and <laughs> so I you got to see it yourself, yeah. yeah. Yes. As a viewer, you got experimented upon it. It's really fascinating. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's a really powerful teaching to see how our mind, how our agendas influence what we actually experience. It's kind of mind-blowing. So we need to stop. So more next week. (laughs) Thank you.